0: This week on Useful to God, Dr. James Spencer and I will unpack and repack the question on how to deny the world and follow Christ. I'm Richard Beattie, and for me, spending 52 years in media, ministry, and music, this is something that has always been a struggle. James, I used to think that in order to make a difference in media, the media professional writer, producer, and host would either have to choose a Christian media outlet to work in or find work at a mainstream media corporation, or become a freelancer and eventually a media entrepreneur. For years, I thought that if I went the Christian media route, I would remain true to the cause, I would deny the world, and I could follow Christ. Uh, on the other hand, if I took a job at a network or ad firm, would I have to deny Christ? So, so James, where can we find balance?
1: Well, I think, you know, ultimately, number one, I, I think it's important to note that um, the institution or the type of organization that you're in doesn't necessarily mean that you are being useful to God or following Christ. Uh, you know, I've I've worked at Christian organizations for most of my career. And uh, there were times when I found it far more efficient and productive uh, to, be, uh, to exercise a lower level of Christian character, uh, far less integrity than I probably should have, and to be more aggressive and more um, metrics or marketing or money-driven uh, than it was really to hold fast to um, what it meant to be a Christ follower. And so, you know, even within a Christian organization, I think that there is uh, this impetus or temptation to chase after our own agendas or the agendas of the organization, which don't necessarily align with Christ. And I would actually say that there is no organization that fully aligns with what it means to exercise Christian character in every moment of every day. Right. Organizations have their own agendas. Sometimes they align very closely with what uh, we would need to do as Christians. Other times they don't. And so it isn't a matter of where you work. I think it's a matter of who you are. And if who you are is someone who is seeking to, uh, please Christ, if you are someone who is seeking to, uh, nest everything that you do in discipleship, in, in other words, um, if you go to work as a leader in a secular company or as, you know, um, as just an employee at a secular company and you're saying at the beginning of your day, Uh, My goal today is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to proclaim the gospel in word and deed in everything that I do, and then to do a good job for my company. You're in the right headspace to deny the world and follow Christ. If instead what you're asking yourself is to say, I'm going to go to work um, and, and I'm going to do my job really, really well. And along the way, I sure hope I can demonstrate Christian character. You're in the wrong headspace to deny the world and follow Christ. Because often our organizations, Christian or not, will ask us to do things that are going to serve their agendas, but not necessarily advance a kingdom agenda. And we just have to be really aware of that. And so the question becomes in in, you know, you ask, where do we find balance? I don't know that we do. I think what we find is priorities and we find a priority in so much as we say at the beginning of our day no matter how it goes or where we go i am going to be christian first no matter what and that will come with consequences and implications and it will probably uh in some cases you know hinder you from moving forward in your organization or what have you or it may have that appearance But ultimately, I think that that is the orientation that God truly blesses when we say I'm going to follow Christ, period, full stop. And then when we move on to the next sentence and say, and I'll do my best to serve my organization as well. That's the mentality we want to carry into this.
0: But it's so hard sometimes, isn't it?
1: It really is. I mean, I I think, you know, again, like I mentioned, I mean, I I oversaw a distance education division um, at a Christian college. And, you know, the enrollment pressures were real. It wasn't just sort of something ancillary that I blew off. It was it was a real serious thing. And I think that as those pressures would sort of overtake me and I would become obsessed with hitting those numbers and, you know, really making things work and advancing the the department and making sure we hit our numbers. Um, I know I lost sight of Christ a lot of the time. And, you know, that's coming from a guy who's had, you know, <laughs> more than a decade of theological education. It, it's difficult. Those pressures are real pressures. And so the the point is not to say, if you don't do this, you're a horrible human being, right? The point is to say that if every morning we are not waking up committing to do to say, I'm going to be Christian first, no matter what, we're taking that, we're, we're getting up on the wrong side of the bed, so to speak. And we need to really begin with that initial commitment to love God with all we are and with all we have as i'm phrasing it to be christian first no matter what and then as we go throughout our day that we may we may find that we succumb to temptations to sort of go another route um but that's the beautiful part about christianity is that Um, God allows us to confess our sins and is faithful and just in, in forgiving us our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. I mean, we have this beautiful relationship with God where he honors, not only our intentions, he not only honors our good works, but he honors our alignment with the truth. As we confess when we have fallen short of his standards.
0: Well, I know, and this is a this is a great conversation because I think there's a, a lot of people that go through this all the time, and you just think of you think of Paul. No matter how hard I try not to do something or to do something, I, you know, I just fail at it miserably. Uh, you know, yeah. in the 17 years I spent that focus on the family, writing and producing features, specials, radio spots, and PSAs, I put together my own company then, and that served organizations like Focus, uh, Promise Keepers, and National Day of Prayer. Then I began to study and benchmark other professionals, people who were doctors, psychiatrists, architects, lawyers, composers, actors, scientists, teachers, and authors. I mean, every professional that you could think, they were considered leaders in their professions and they lived a Christian lifestyle. They were examples. Very little compromising was done. And in fact, they remain living with Christian ethics and values. They united people in the way they treated them. And, and then they were available when people needed them. How do we demonstrate that kind of usefulness no matter where we live, work, or are part of communities?
1: So I'm a big believer that that sort of character and that sort of usefulness isn't developed easily. It's developed over time through the small decisions that we make. There was a great article written in the 1970s and I'm blanking on the author right now, so I won't even try to think of it. Um, But it was called the tyranny of small decisions. And basically what this gentleman argued was that, you know, as, as we look out at the, at the market, right. Right and all of us are deciding all of a sudden to um, you know, purchase X, Y, or Z, that these little decisions are made as individuals, but the broader decisions and the implications of those small decisions have these fantastic effects on the market. And I really think the same is true of our lives. So as Christians, what we end up doing is, we end up making a series of small decisions. And as we make those series of small decisions faithfully, as we're faithful in the small things. In other words, we then are confronted with bigger problems, bigger issues, bigger ethical and moral challenges. But if we've made the small decisions well along the way, we're really prepared to meet those moral challenges. And so the the moral crises that many people will have, we won't have. And so what I would say is that if we want to both be leaders in our profession and, and even leaders in our home and also exhibit a Christian lifestyle. What we have to do is focus in on the small decisions, the small everyday basic decisions that allow us to honor Christ in the mundane ways that we do on a daily basis if we can't do that, if we can't be faithful in the little things, we cannot expect to be faithful in the big things. And and that's where I think a lot of this usefulness sort of draws from. I know in my own life, you know, um, when I was sort of chasing after the enrollment numbers and the revenue targets and all that kind of fun stuff, uh, I also wasn't really practicing good Christian disciplines on a daily basis. I wasn't being particularly obedient. Now, when I was living sort of hand to mouth uh, as a personal trainer and, uh, you know, training uh, clients who didn't know Christ, I was far more faithful in the disciplines that I was exercising. And so when I'd go into work, I knew that I was going to confront people who didn't know Jesus. I knew I was going to be working with people who didn't know Jesus. And it created a tension that I had to respond to. I needed to resist in a different way. And I think when I started working for a Christian organization, I just got too comfortable, and I thought, "Well, I'm immersed in this Christian environment, and so some of these disciplines that I was doing, I don't really need to do anymore." Well, that was fallacious. That that was just wrong thinking on my part. And so, what I've found over the years is that, to the extent that I am obedient in the small things, I will be a better leader and live a better Christian lifestyle, more faithful Christian lifestyle than I will when I'm not obedient in the small things.
0: On the same note, uh, we've we've had some fun programs that we call answering letters. Uh, w- with the remaining time that we have, uh, and for next week, I I would like to begin to answer Paul's letter to the Colossians. Uh, and actually, I I would like you more uh, to to help me <laughs> answer this letter specifically, chapter two. Uh, Paul writes, "I want you to know how hard I am contending for you, and for those at Laodicea." And for all who have not met me personally, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ in whom, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine sounding arguments for though I am absent, from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and, and how firm your faith in Christ is. James, there are so many fine sounding arguments we hear in our culture, some not so fine. And yet, how do we dissect those arguments and then test them?
1: You know, it's really interesting. I I think that one of the things we have to do when we're listening to those, quote, fine sounding arguments is really begin to question the underlying assumptions of those fine sounding arguments. I'll give you an example. I was I was uh, I'm writing a piece right now that will be released here and not not too long on uh, artificial intelligence. And so I decided to go out and have an actual conversation, conversation in air quotes with ChatGPT, which is an artificial intelligence model. And I asked it whether artificial intelligence intelligence represented progress for humankind. And in its answer, it provided me with a pretty strong affirmative answer. Yes, I think AI will represent progress for humankind. But when I asked it what progress actually was, it couldn't define it. Progress is one of those sort of ambiguous terms, right? That sort of makes an argument um, seem more real, more substantive than it actually is. And so as I was sort of having this quote unquote conversation with GPT, what I found was that Many times it was using these ambiguous terms to bolster its argument, to push things forward, assuming that we had a shared understanding about what progress was or what the good is or what religion means. And and that just isn't the case. And so part of what we're going to have to do if we're going to avoid falling prey to fine sounding arguments is we're going to have to root ourselves very deeply In biblical and theological truth. And and I don't mean that in sort of a fundamental doctrinal sense, right? What I mean is when we're founding ourselves in biblical and theological truth, I'm saying that we are so orienting ourselves to the world uh, and, and to the God who is active and present in our world, that arguments that do not take that into account automatically seem odd to us. Why is it that this argument isn't assuming that God is active and present in the world? Why is it that this argument is assuming that it understands wisdom when it doesn't know God? We've got to get that sort of down to our own roots with this. So much of avoiding fine sounding arguments is about us, not about other people. It's about us owning what we believe. It's about us being convicted about what the scriptures say and about what, what theology we really believe and living that out in our daily lives and being very diligent about the way we hear things, consume things, and also express things. And so we've just got to get that much deeper and become that much more convicted about what the truth actually is. As opposed to falling to some sort of um, ideological or positional understanding, you know, that this is a conservative view, this is a liberal view. And if I'm on the conservative side, I don't, side I'm okay. I, I just, I'm not sure I believe that. I'm not sure that I believe and I'm not at all prepared to equate Christianity with conservatism. Christianity is something very different than that. Conservatism is not rooted in biblical and theological truth. It does not necessarily believe that Christ was raised from the dead. And so while we may resonate with some of those arguments, we have to recognize that we are not a part of conservatism. In other words, we aren't birthed from conservatism, right? We're birthed, new birth in Christ. And that's where we need to focus. And if we want to avoid those fine sounding arguments, I think that's as, as radically as we need to begin thinking about who we are in Jesus.
0: And there may be some people who are listening right now that may think that is radical thinking, and it really isn't. It's, uh, <laughs> In fact, when conservatism uh, starts sounding more radical <laughs> than, uh, than anything else, uh, you're not conservative anymore, are you?
1: <laughs> no, I mean, it's very much a basic Christian understanding, is that there is no other worldview that truly aligns with us. I think there are worldviews and there's there are positions that are sort of what I would call Christianity adjacent. And what I mean by that is that they tend to uh, align with God's order in uh, ways that we would resonate with, right? So if we look at Romans 13 and we say, okay, the government is ordained by God in order to restrain evil, right? And to judge between good and evil. There's a way then in which that the government should align with God's order in a broad sense but that in no way makes that government Christian because to me to be Christian we it means that Christ is a necessary element and actually the central element of what it means to be Christian and so if Christ isn't essential it's not Christian
0: yeah, James, uh, you talk a lot about fitness, and uh, I, I I love when we start talking about fitness and uh, you know adding five pounds of weight to each side, so getting stronger in increments mm-hmm. in order to experience spiritual fullness, getting the full benefit of our training. What are some of the things we need to do in increments to experience and practice getting to spiritual? Fullness.
1: Yeah, this is really interesting. There's a there's a book out uh, that came out recently. The science of stuck, I believe, is the the title of it. But basically, what the one of the arguments of the book is is that you know the human brain isn't really built to be demotivated. It's built to be motivated. The human brain leans us toward activity, and so one of the things that I try to counsel people is to say. Look, just do something do something that approximates obedience to God's word, (laughs) right? Um, There are things in your life that you're doing right at this moment that are hindering you from experiencing spiritual fullness. Stop doing those and start doing almost anything else. Simple things. It doesn't have to be huge. Right. Uh, right now we're going through the Go Dark, Shine Bright campaign um, at, uh, at the El Moody Center. And so it's a five day media fast. It's a setting aside of media that is hindering your walk with Jesus Christ. That's not a huge sacrifice. It's not that big of a deal. Right. But in, in taking those five days off and, and substituting the time that you are spending on media with time in God's word and in prayer. You're getting sort of an exponential benefit out of that very small, relatively innocuous practice. And that's the sort of incremental change that I think is necessary. We need to consistently be looking at the things in our lives that are hindering us from following Christ, and then consistently replacing those or substituting them with things that will help us grow in our relationship with Christ. That's
0: great. Uh, We're going to have to leave it there right now. Next week, uh, we'll have uh, we'll continue this this line of questioning on becoming useful to God. We have some guests that will help us in uh, denying the world and following Christ. We'll continue to answer letters, James. We're going to pick up from uh, where we leave off today, and then we'll talk about uh, how people can sign up for an interactive discussion on the audio book "Useful to God," as well as some of the other media that is available.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm really looking forward to uh, getting together with some folks. I love teaching. I love teaching on Zoom. And so it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about Useful to God and uh, just excited for people to, uh, uh, you know, be interested in that and uh, to hopefully show, uh, sign up and show up and have a really great conversation.
0: And to sign up, I set up a special email account, and uh, it's a Gmail account, of course. And uh, it is uh, <laughs> what is it? Useful to God at gmail.com to sign up for this interactive. Uh, you, you'll get the audio book. Uh, you'll you'll also get uh, a chance to uh, ask James some uh, some some good questions, and maybe make a few statements on your own too. So please email me at usefultogodradio@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Before we go, here's the introduction to the book. Useful to God, Nine Lessons from the Life of D.L. Moody by Dr. James Spencer.
1: Introduction. At the end of 2018, I was seriously considering leaving Christian work. I was struggling through a challenging year as an academic dean, and had nearly lost my sense of God's presence in my life. I was exhausted, angry, and on the verge of hopelessness. After years of pushing myself to achieve, get promotions, and develop a solid reputation within biblical education, I was running on empty, and had been for some time. It was time for a change. I took a leap of faith away from higher education and accepted a position with Moody Center, a fairly young, independent Christian nonprofit organization that owned a portion of the historic property where Dwight L. Moody lived and did much of his ministry in Northfield, Massachusetts. Stepping into my work there, I was still reeling from a challenging year, but I knew I needed to hit the ground running. In addition to learning the ropes, I also needed to learn about Dwight Moody. Little did I know that the combination of the two would give me something I hadn't had in years a deep sense of God's presence. I'd spent my professional career at one of the schools that Moody founded in Chicago, Illinois, so I knew Dwight Moody as an evangelist who had also started Bible institutes. Beyond that, I knew precious little about him. I'd never read any of his books and had only casually thumbed through a few of his biographies. He seemed impressive enough but it never captured my interest. My relative ignorance of Moody ended up being quite beneficial because I got to know him through reading his personal correspondence that was housed in Moody Center's Digital Archive Project. As I read, Moody began to win me over. His letters were raw with multiple spelling and grammar errors, but they were authentic and written with a clear care and concern for others. Moody was not known as a theological thinker, but in his letters, I discovered a man whose understanding of God influenced the way he interacted with others, shaped his desires and prayers, and handled everyday situations. His letters were not compelling because of his eloquence or his rhetorical prowess, but because of his unique ability to convey his faith through more mundane, day-to-day communication. Also, throughout his letters, a certain word that he used to address his desire to be of service to God repeatedly jumped out at me. Useful. With all his heart, Moody strove to be useful to God. I studied his written works like Secret Power, Prevailing Prayer, What Hinders It?, and Pleasure and Profit in Bible Study. I began to curate a set of Moody quotes and to write some short articles inspired by his life and thought. As I studied Moody's life, I realized I had been too independent, too willing to tie God to my own agendas, and too focused on achievement. Despite earning multiple advanced theological degrees, working in Christian higher education, and being active at my local church, I had lost sight of what it meant to walk by faith. Now when I reflect on my last few years at Moody Center and the work of God in my life, in part through my study of Moody, I don't believe God is done with him. God continues to use Moody's story. This book revisits Moody's life and ministry with the help of one of Moody's contemporaries, R.A. Torrey. Tori's book, entitled Why God Used D.L. Moody, described the characteristics that made Moody radically open to God's use. These characteristics provide a wonderful way to introduce you to Dwight Moody and encourage us to be a people who are useful to God. This book can be enjoyed individually or within a small group setting. After an introduction to Moody, each of the preceding chapters is a journey into the ministry of Moody and how his personal characteristics, the Word, and his work informed his choices. Each chapter also includes a biblical devotion, some probing reflection questions, and the opportunity for you to create your own action plan to grow in the characteristic discussed in the chapter. My hope is that, in considering why God used D.L. Moody, you will be inspired, as I am, to show the world what God can do through an individual who has totally surrendered to Him and how we can become such individuals as well.